Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism, a place to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 17. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we're on patreon.com, a website through which you can support us with a monthly donation. If you've been following us for a while now, we'd really appreciate your chipping in a dollar, or a euro, or even a pound per month. It is a real source of support for us, and also lets us know you're part of our podcast journey. You can find us at patreon.com slash theextrahalf, or contact us at theextrahalf at gmail.com. This week's guest is Josiah Ko. Josiah is a wonderful violist whose father is from the United States, where Josiah also grew up, and whose mother is from the Philippines. He cares deeply about the role that music can play in our society and is a generous artist both as a performer and as an educator. Josiah calls Atlanta home and has given concerts as a chamber and orchestral musician throughout Georgia and the United States, in Europe, and in Malaysia. We talk about his work as a musician, but also about his unusual upbringing, geographically speaking, and his unique perspectives on biculturalism and culture in general. Here's the conversation. Hey, Josiah. Hi, Natanya. When people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? The short answer is that I'm from Georgia, the United States. Uh, sometimes when I give that answer, people do have to qualify if I mean the state in the, the U.S. or if I mean the country in uh, Central Eurasia. So, um, And the long answer isn't much different than that, except for where my family comes from and where uh, where my parents come from. My dad is um, American and Caucasian, and um, and he grew up in a variety of places in the U.S., and my mom comes from the Philippines. So I'm assuming that you grew up in the American state and not the country. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what your childhood looked like and what part of Georgia you were growing up in and what that community was like? Um, I grew up in a rural part of North Georgia. So when we were living there, when I was young, it was mostly farms. Some people even still living in a very, very old fashioned way of life. And my parents kind of chose that on purpose, I guess, to get us into like a hearty existence, I guess, because we, we had a goat farm and we had chickens and we had pigs and, and all of our neighbors in, in those days had uh, small farms, you know, so we were also, you know, the only people who were not white Southern Americans who lived in the area that we grew up in, um, at least for a time. And that wasn't really ever a problem. You know, we didn't really ever have anything, but people noticed, you know, they would wonder if we were from, um, mostly people thought we were from Mexico. So. <laughs> wow. And when you say we, who was in your nuclear family? I'm not sure what you mean by nuclear, but in my parents' household, there were more people than just my parents and us as kids. There were often um, extended relatives that were living with us, um, grandparents. Uh, my grandma pretty much lived with us my whole life. Um, and we've had uncles and aunts live with us at different times and cousins and both my parents were very involved in um, a Filipino church as we were growing up. So there were a lot of people who came um, even to live with us through that connection, too. So, 
And how many siblings do you have? I have seven siblings. I have five sisters and two brothers. We all kind of, we were basically our entire social world until a certain age, until we got old enough that we were kind of doing things on our own. But we were all homeschooled from the beginning, pretty much all the way through till college. I kind of joke with people and say the first time I ever went to school was when I went to college. So, <laughs> But it's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> wow. But while we were preparing this conversation, you told me a couple of the really striking and amazing things that you were able to do with the freedom that you had coming from this environment and being homeschooled. Can you talk a little bit about that freedom and the kinds of topics and subjects that you were able to explore because they interested you? Well, um, I guess because I was homeschooled, there was it really opened up music for for me personally because that was the only subject that I wasn't getting only from my parents. So um, that was something that um, I remember being really, really interested in and that being kind of also a a resource for socialization. So um, any kind of music class or orchestra class or things like that were really exciting. Um, But I guess we had a very untraditional kind of even way of because we didn't have breaks or we didn't have like a standard school schedule we were just in school unless there was like a religious holiday and then you don't do school on that day you know so the subjects were always they were there weren't as many like parameters of things like if we were interested in the subject we would get the book and we would start to learn about it so and like what what was in our grade or those things kind of were meaningless to me And which languages did you grow up speaking? And was that different speaking with your mother and your father? And what about your siblings? Was there a unified, uniform kind of language between all of you? So the languages I grew up hearing were English and Kamampangan. Those are the first languages I think that I grew up hearing. And Kamampangan is the native dialect of my maternal side of my family. That's their like native language in the Philippines. And so my grandmother, she pretty much will only speak that language to me. And, um, and my mom will speak that language to me, especially, um, but especially if there are like situations, like maybe in public, if she's like trying to tell you <laughs> something that she's embarrassed to say, you know, that other people will understand, then my mom will definitely speak in Kamampangan. But my mom is, you know, she'll speak in English and Kamampangan, you know, but especially with my grandma and this because she was always there that is that's like the number one language for her so and then english with my dad um but with my siblings i guess cuz you know there's this precedent like oh if you can speak this language that people can't understand then you can like just talk about whatever you want so me and my siblings were taking french we had a french tutor that would come to our house and like teach us french a couple times a week so but my mom can't hear French at all. So that would be like the language that we would like <laughs> talk about things like that she couldn't. I mean, I by no means could we speak French like super well, but we could manage to like we had a language where we knew what we could say and what we could talk about and you know. <laughs> That's great. So And how did your parents actually meet? Uh they met at the University of Florida. They were both students there. Wow. Actually, I'm curious. Um, what is the like age span between your oldest and youngest sibling? 
um, I think it's about 18 years. Wow. I could be wrong about that. Sorry if I <laughs> got a couple of years, but it's, it's right around, it's right around that, like 18 years between the eldest and the youngest. So there was like a, like two halves of family, you know, there was, um, an older half, which I am the youngest of. <laughs> and then there's the second half, the younger half, which I'm the eldest of. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so are you number four or number five? I'm number four. I see, so, I see, I see. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so um, sometimes people would, like, even, um, even, like, our friends who are from the Philippines, they would come over and they would be like, wow, like, this is, like, old school, the Philippines. This is, like, you know, from, like, way back then, like, back in the days when families were huge and you didn't have public school options. And so... <laughs> So sometimes we kind of jokingly say that like we were raised in like kind of like we were raised like we were in the Philippines by my mom in in a, in a lot of ways. So um, there's a big difference between my mom's culture and my more the, her family and my dad's family because my dad's family is very small and everyone's autonomous and um, if you don't talk then there's no relationship. It's like they're gone forever, you know. Um, whereas in my mom's family, everyone is like very connected. There's a strong sense of like, you can meet somebody who's like, Hey, I'm like the daughter of your aunt or something like that, you know? And then there's this immediate feeling that you know that you belong to the same like group and family. There's just like, and at the same time, pressure to help them out. Like, Oh, you should help your cousin out. You should help, you know? But on my dad's side of the family, there's... There's none of that. I don't even have a single first cousin on my dad's side. Oh, no, that's not true. I've just never met them. And they're in Canada somewhere. But it's just very different. So whereas like with my Filipino relatives, like um, even the ones that are in the Philippines that, that I, I haven't even met in person, some of them I have, but like uh, we'll be friends on, you know, through social media kinds of things. And but people still are. You know, you still ask, like, how are these important people? How's, how's Nanai? How's Lola? Like, those kinds of things. And there's, like, connection through there. So that's something that's I've always noticed. Um, so as a kid, I would sometimes think that that made me more Filipino because I felt like the people that I felt connected to were all Filipino. Um, but um, also... <laughs> I'm disconnected from my white American family, just like they are from each other. So in that sense, I am also very much like them. So. <laughs> That's nice. It's a good way of thinking about it, yeah. And the, your mom's side of the family, are they mostly in the Philippines or mostly in the United States, or is it well mixed? It's pretty mixed in terms of who stayed forever, who came to the U.S. forever, and also who goes back and forth between the places these days people are feeling more comfortable going back and forth but for a while there a lot of filipino people in my family they were uh there were deterrents from going back to the philippines that often um it, it, it's kind of remote in terms of flying there um and also people were worried about uh, safety for a long time so and in a lot of ways still are worried about safety in terms of when they go there, 
sometimes political minorities don't do well in the Philippines, you know. So um, a lot of corruption that, that, you know, makes people afraid. So as a result, I didn't actually grow up. I didn't go to the Philippines. Um, my other siblings would, but it wasn't financially feasible or people didn't feel like it was that safe for all eight of us to be brought there, you know. So people say that it's uh, safer these days for, uh, in general, to travel um, in the Philippines. But there's um, a really sad political other side to that, you know, <laughs> and that political minorities didn't survive or social minority groups. So mm. when parts of your family did travel, would it be like two or three siblings or something like that? Yeah, it would be two or three siblings and sometimes just one sibling with one parent. So my dad traveled all around the world for work. And so even in those kinds of situations, he would bring like one or two siblings and my mom and we would just stay with my, the rest of us would stay with my grandma or um, sometimes in some very exciting situations, it would just be one sibling and my dad. And that was very, that was a very cool and exciting kind of thing to do so wow was that do you have any stories were you ever in an interesting special place with him well when I was a little kid um I went to Japan for two weeks with him but he was busy the whole time and so it was like Mitsubishi heavy industries you know just assigned people to like take me wherever I wanted so <laughs> it was amazing that was a, an amazing experience um as kids he took us to the Caribbean, we went to Puerto Rico, we went to Mexico. I was in South Korea with my dad. I was in Japan with my dad. Um, uh, other siblings that, you know, we were all very close to. So we would tell each other the stories of our experiences and those became like stories for us. So I remember my older sister went with my dad to, uh, to Prague um, sometime in the 90s. And I don't, I don't know, I think there was like a big political upheaval in what was Czechoslovakia at the time. And I remember my sister and my dad were there like around the time that it became um, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. And so um, my sister says that she remembers hearing like explosion sounds in the distance. I don't, but like that, those were like part of like the stories that we were telling each other that always made it, even as a little kid, I always knew like, the world is big, there's all this stuff happening, and um, and everyone's, like, connected, and everyone's kind of the same. There's not, like, I feel like from the way that we grew up, it was very hard to understand any kind of otherization that would happen, you know, in um, political movements, or I remember when, after 9-11, there was a lot of, um, I guess that was, like, some of the time I was about 11 years old, I guess. Um, and that was some of the time that I was realizing that like people can turn a whole group of people into like other an enemy and they don't care who you are, but more what you look like. And so since me, you know, I'm half Filipino and half English and Irish and Scotch and so, you know, it's like that, that kind of uh, Caucasian. And so the way that I look 
suddenly could be and 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 my siblings could suddenly be seen as being uh, Middle Eastern. And I remember just at, as I'm becoming a teenager and traveling a lot, there was always like that kind of, especially in those early days. Suddenly there was like a fear that like if that people will like treat me differently because they they identify me as as different because people were worried about who was Muslim and who wasn't in, in, in the South, you know? So that was, I think, one of the very first times that I started realizing that like, oh, people don't care about where you're from, you know, in, in a lot of ways in terms of otherizing. It's, it's about um, creating these narratives that have nothing to do with the people that you're describing, but just, you know, so as a result, I got really interested in Middle Eastern culture and Middle Eastern languages because people kept asking, like, are you Middle Eastern? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And they'd be like, oh, that's fine. And so then I started talking to Muslim people and like um, met like some Iranian people. I got really interested in Iranian culture and ended up taking uh, Farsi in college and just getting a lot of exposure to um places that I, I've still, I've never been to Iran, I haven't seen, but I have a lot of exposure to the, the, the culture there. And um, that kind of came just as a weird result of people mistaking me and being like, are you, you know, what are you? <laughs> you need to explain yourself. So, and the similar kind of thing with Spanish, like people otherize Mexican people. And so white people would often say, like, think that I, I'm Mexican. Um, and so that was like, kind of like, I was like, no, I'm not Mexican. It was when I realized that also Mexican people always think that I'm Mexican, that I got really, really interested in um, like knowing more Spanish and knowing more about that. And, you know, <laughs> so, so both Spanish and Farsi, I feel like have became interesting to me through those things that people who are in those cultures would often misidentify me as part of their culture or, you know, so. It's <laughs> incredible. And what about Filipino people? Do they usually see you as half Filipino or usually not? Yeah, um, if they if they know me, I've never had a Filipino acquaintance or anything that just told me like, well, you are not really Filipino because of your blood, but more like you in the Philippines, this is how it's done. So you don't necessarily know that. So it's not necessarily that you're not Filipino, but that you don't know what's happening in the Philippines. But sometimes I do feel that like, when I meet Filipino people that I know for sure that they're Filipino, that they don't necessarily also have that experience where they know definitely that I am Filipino. But if we talk and we're talking about things, then, um, then it's clear I've never been not accepted, you know, but I'm not necessarily, that's, I've never been just a stranger who was Filipino or a stranger who was white. No one has ever come up to me and said like, oh, you're one of the groups that I actually genetically belong to. None of them will just come up to me out of the blue and assume that I'm part of their group where um, that is not the case with like um, Latin American culture, for example. Um, anytime that I'm in a Spanish speaking country, people just assume that I am part of the culture and, you know, um, even my Spanish is not very good, but even talking Spanish, you people are like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from the States. And they're like, oh, really? Okay. You know, once you have a long enough conversation, you realize it's crap, you know, <laughs> like it's very, <laughs> it's not very good Spanish, you know, but it's, you know, so. 
Yeah, I had that experience once when someone came up to me on the street and started speaking Turkish with me. And it was really bizarre. I mean, yeah, to realize that someone had misrecognized me as one of their own. It's, it's a strange sensation. Yeah. And after it happens so many times, you start saying, like, it was so many times that somebody was like, your mom didn't teach you Spanish? Like, shame. And I'm like, yeah, for shame, I should speak Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, wow. Well, there is something that we were talking about um, a couple weeks ago that that is kind of a a thing in America, obviously, for, for a lot of reasons, but it's the famous race bubble. In terms of that, the answer to that, that's always been, I've always found the race bubble, like very, almost insidious. And and I think also my mom trained me to always put white because that's how they found the Japanese for the internment camps. And so you shouldn't advertise your otherness to the government. (laughs) So um, I'll put white or other. I have been in a situation where somebody told me I was not allowed to lie on on there. They had they saw what I had put that I had put white and that it wasn't like um, they wanted me to put another answer um, that wasn't a, ha- a satisfying answer for them. Um, but that was just a, a one time situation. Most of the time, I feel awkward about it in private. So <laughs> that's definitely really complex. I wonder what, I mean, I guess the the only correct answer from that standpoint would be to say mixed race, right? I mean. Right. Um, And going back a little bit to what you asked what Filipinos will often refer to me as, they use the term mestizo a lot of times to describe. So um, that is like something that uh, carries over from the Spanish colonial culture, but that's, but that's essentially what that's describing is like people who are Filipino and also mixed with Spanish originally, but that has come in the Philippines to also include people who are mixed with any kind of European blood. So. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the diversity within Filipino culture and the history of the country, which I think is a lot more complex than one might realize from the outside? Well, it, it is a very diverse country. I think um, I've, I've seen some things where it's like one of the more genetically diverse countries, just from a genetic standpoint, in all of the world, and in, in particular that part of the world, which is already uh, fairly genetically diverse, all of Malaysia and Indonesia and those kinds of places. But the Philippines has one of those high diversity genetically um, like statuses, but they also have a lot of cultures. I think because the, the island, you know, islands make cultures, right? So there's a lot of islands and there's also a lot of mountains. So even on the really, really big islands, there are many cultures and many languages so much that it's like, um, the national language of the Philippines is Filipino. That's what you officially say. Cause And it's something like mostly Tagalog, but like, it's a little bit of, you know, you don't really hear people admitting that the national or saying that the national language of the Philippines is Tagalog. That doesn't, you know, because there are people who hold that their language, so they just fix it and they just say it's Filipino. (laughs) 
so that you don't have to say, well, what about Ilocano? What about Kamapangan? What about Cebuano? Like, and then all the other languages that like, I don't even know that they exist because, you know, not that many people speak them and they basically live in not one of the big centers. So I know that within my family's culture that they feel very proud of the distinctness of being from Pampanga. Uh, so, and I've heard, you know, whenever I meet other Filipinos who are from this uh, particular place in the Philippines, I feel like there's a quickness to becoming really friendly and really familial, you know, um, that doesn't quite happen. It doesn't quite happen with like just other people. Like, you know, I love meeting people from anywhere. I especially love meeting Filipino people, but there's a special thing about meeting a Kamampangan person. Like, it's like, oh, you know this language that like a million people know, that's it. You know, in the whole planet, that's, that's it, you know? Um, and that's always a little special. Plus, they always understand what I'm saying when I'm speaking in Filipino languages, because sometimes I um, will mix Kamampangan and Tagalog and so it's like, or I'll get confused as to, you know, which word is what language. So, come on, Pangan people always under, because they know both. So they know what I'm saying. <laughs> wow. If I speak to my grandma in Tagalog, because growing up in a, a, like in the Filipino community that was in Georgia, everybody was speaking Tagalog to each other because everyone's from everywhere. So it becomes really important, you know. Um, but to my grandma, like my grandma can understand it. She like talks to them. She talks to Filipino people in Tagalog all the time. But if I talk to her in Tagalog, she's like, huh? Like, nano? <laughs> 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 so, um, so that's an, an interesting thing. So there is, there is a, a sense of pride in, in terms of like what languages they are. Something that I think is really interesting is because they're very different, but they're really similar. So since I know pieces of a few of those languages, um, I went to Malaysia and beforehand I wanted to learn some Malaysian. So as I was going through Malaysian, I was like, wow, like it's actually, a, it's all of them. It's all of the Filipino languages that I know like mixed into a language. And it's like, you could see its relatedness and, and how it's different. So it made it kind of fun to to try to interact in Malaysian. And then I realized that in Malaysia, Malaysian people, not everybody speaks Malaysian in Malaysia. Because <laughs> it's very diverse as well, so. And I'm curious, you talked about English. Um, did Spanish, did the Spanish language leave any sort of linguistic imprint? Yeah, I'm not sure the exact percentage, but it is a, a very high percentage of vocabulary words that have Spanish roots, you know? Um, we don't conjugate in the same way. So like in Spanish, to work is uh, trabajar, right? And when you say I work, you say trabajo. In Tagalog, you say trabajo and to work is mag trabajo. And so we took a form of the word, a conjugated form, the, the like singular personal, whatever you call it. And, but we took that and changed it into the stem of the verb. And so then you just conjugate it based off of Filipino rules. So magtrabaho is to work, you know, um, and if you're saying I'm working, magtatrabaho ako. So like, 
but you can hear the trabajo still in there. It never, that part never changes. So we don't ever, for example, we don't ever uh, change those kinds of things. The days of the week telling time. So if you tell time, you tell time in Spanish. But if you're counting, like you're just saying, like how many people are going to the store, you, you use uh, Filipino numbers. So it's kind of everywhere. It's in the names of foods. It's in the names of people. Any, a lot of people who are going to be Catholic, or even non-Catholics, their last names tend to be Spanish or Catholic last names. So, and even first names. So it's still really prevalent. I think when my grandma was a child, she had to learn a lot of Spanish in school. But when my mom was a child, that was already not the case. Spanish being taught wasn't the main language. And main, uh, some of the major literature for Filipino people, especially coming out of the 19th century, so as the Philippines became a nation state, the major writings are being written in Spanish. And all of the major literary revolutionary heroes of the 19th century were all educated and writing in Spain, in Spanish. Because oddly enough, that's where you could go and write liberal things that were anti-imperialist. But if you wrote that in the Philippines, you would be imprisoned and or executed, which is often what would happen. They would go back and then they'd be tried for things they wrote. But when they were in Spain, they were celebrated for being, you know, visionaries, liberal visionaries. So, <laughs> Wow. Of the many languages spoken in the Philippines, um are some languages more heavily influenced by Spanish and some languages less heavily influenced? Oh yeah, there's a language in the in the Philippines that's spoken in um, Zamboanga, that, which is like an island that's like off in the middle of the ocean, like kind of not close to others. It's like between Malaysia and the Philippines. Um, and they speak uh, a language called Chavacano, which is... It's, it's Spanish, but with Filipino syntax. It just has the most Spanish. Yeah, so um, if you listen to it, if you know Spanish, you'll probably understand most of what everyone is saying. Um, except for it will sound like they're speaking everything backwards because of the, the word order. Because they use Filipino word order. Oh, wow. How is that different? What is, what is classic Filipino word order? Um... Well, you can say things in a couple of different ways, but you can kind of flip where your subject and your verb are, I think is how they say it, right? So you can say, for example, um, like, I am Josiah. You could say, ako si Josiah, or you could say, Josiah ko. Mm. So you can, and both of those are correct. In fact, people are more likely to do that where they're putting uh, the subject at the end how people are more likely to talk, but in books, you can see it in both ways. Um, so you might say, in, in Spanish, you might say, soy Josiah. And in Chavacano, you would say, Josiah soy, you know, <laughs> for example. I don't know that that's exactly how it goes, but just from listening to it, that's that's how it sounds to me. So um, you'll have to ask um, Chavacano friends, if you have any, <laughs> to give you an, uh, some examples, because it's really, it's, it's, um, really exciting and interesting thing that happens in languages. And I think the Philippines in general, that part of the world is already so, I mean, all languages, all cultures are 
appropriating each other all the time, you know? So, you know, even in the Philippines, the way that you say thank you is salamat. And in Malaysia, those, that's how you say like safe or like good. Like, so we'll say salamat, thank you. Well, we'll other in Malaysia and Indonesia, they use salamat to say like good morning and good afternoon. And Could it come from salam? So that's the thing is that salamat means peace to you in Arabic. And Islam is like a, uh, like a whole culture package that's super popular in South Asia and then eventually Southeast Asia because it carries with it literacy and um, mathematics and trade. So it's very popular. So you can even see even before there were the Spanish there that there's there's this influence that's coming from other parts of the world, you know. My cousin got married to um, a girl whose family is from India, and they had a Hindu wedding, and so the priest of their wedding was speaking in Sanskrit, and all of my relatives swore they could understand what was being said. Wow. That's something that I've, I, I feel like I've learned from my life, is that everyone is really a part of each other, and like, we think that we're so separate that, you know, we're over here in the, the West and or we're over there in the East or, you know, and we're European or we're Middle Eastern or we're African. And the, the story is so beautifully like woven together that no culture is on its own. It can't survive on its own. You know, just like Islam brought basically science to Southeast Asia and South Asia, it did the same thing to Europe which, you know, European descendants conveniently forget, you know, <laughs> as, um, as we, you know, dole out judgment on other people for not being quite as advanced of a democracy as, as we are, you know. <laughs> but it's, I've always seen that it's, it's, it, can't, it can't be true, you know. It can't be true because culture helps you understand people, but not a single person in that culture is defined by that culture. You know, that happens, that's ubiquitous. So everybody finds themselves at odds with their culture and at the same time, um, you know, being informed and, and informed as an as a individual by their culture. But that's something I find pretty, pretty cool too. I'm sure you've experienced that as going around where you know, somebody might say like, oh, uh, are you American or are you European? And th those answers are, you know, the answer is yes, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, totally. And yeah, they were. you made such incredible points. I, I think one thing that I really appreciate that, that I, I can tell that you, that you appreciate too very much um, is how then language can kind of be this micro key into these more macro truths and realities and how sometimes just very small turns, linguistic turns. I mean, I was just biking home with my boyfriend right now and we were talking about how the German word for doubt, Zweifel, and onion, Zwiebel, actually have the same root, which is two. As in the doubt is that you have two different ways and then the onion is this vegetable that has, which is weird because I don't really know, uh, current onions don't really have two bulbs, but it comes from two bulbs. I guess there must be some kinds of onions that have two bulbs. Um, 
And I was thinking, like, isn't that interesting? Or, or like, um, development, how it comes from actually unveiling. And you always think of development as being something that moves forward and that kind of winds from in to out. But actually the word, and in many different languages, it comes from going from out to in and to taking away the excess and getting to the core of things. And sometimes when I, when I f- figure these kinds of things out, it gives me a window, sometimes into the particular culture and sometimes into the human psyche of how these words kind of morphed into what we use now without thinking twice. And, and it's been really incredible sometimes to uncover these parallels. Yeah. Yeah, language is the, the, the main, um, I guess, platform that those memes are being disseminated. And other like categories of them that I really love getting to know because I feel like it helps me to understand uh, like any group of people that I'm trying to get to know is religion or politics. Those things are, you know, whether it's the, the culture of the like rural Georgia, like the, just the foothills of Appalachia, that kind of culture, how they view what their religion is telling them about the world, how all those things help you when you meet a person, you can identify with them so you can understand what it is that they're talking about, even if I vehemently disagree with everything that they say. And likewise, if you know something about Chinese astrology, for example, like if you know about the Zodiac a little bit, you're going to know a little bit about um, a lot of Asian culture, about how um, people feel about um wide things that if you were only going from like learning about just how to say what you want to say, you know, you're not going to learn about how people feel, how these, these um, institutions have shaped the way that people will think. And again, though, there are always going to be individuals and not, but they're working, they're defining themselves against that cultural backdrop, you know, whatever that is. And so learning about that kind of thing, learning about religion, Islam, for example, like, when I was wondering about, oh, what are, what are Middle Eastern people like? Just going to mosques and learning about praying and like going to like discussions that where people are just to hear what that what it is that they're saying about themselves and what what they're telling um, each other how they should be living and things like that. It teaches you a lot about uh, what a culture holds valuable, and then um, and then when you get to it again, you just find out that everyone <laughs> just ends up being like kind of around the same, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think, I mean, communication, all communication comes from or assumes context. I mean, without context, communication is meaningless. And just in terms of, you know, human beings speaking their own mother tongue or being able to read and write, of course. I mean, I'm sure we've all had the experience of looking at a language or like a form of writing that we don't understand and, and seeing it as scribbles and then thinking that, wow, that's how I would see my own language if I hadn't learn to read and write at a young age and like what you're saying it's it's that next level that we sometimes forget about which is that it's not enough to speak our own mother tongue it's not enough to read and write um you have to keep on working on accumulating context in order to be able to communicate with as many people as possible but at the same time the core of what's being communicated is absolutely universal even when we were talking about otherizing people before sometimes being that person that goes and like 
is the one offering the position of the other people. Because if you don't, if you're not doing that, then other people are putting, they're inferring or explicitly stating out these opinions that are believed by imaginary people. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, that's great. So it's easy to, so this imaginary enemy believes this horrible thing that's so diametrically opposed to everything you believe in, but it's a fake point of view, you know? So uh, I know a lot of very conservative people as, you know, as a result of my like geography, right? So, um, and I find it really amazing to go and talk to like, Trumpers who are very, very like pro-Trump. And if you just don't get into the, any of the words that people are using and you're just talking about like actual issues and presenting um, points of view, people are always willing to listen. You know, I think that's one of the things that is really, really dangerous that I think the U.S. in, in the U.S. our culture has sort of supported in general, like the sort of exceptionalism and just sort of believing that Americans are, you know, more educated or like whatever, whatever it is, weird beliefs that they have has created this zone where it's just very easy to create any other kinds of beliefs that, you know, the Muslims may have or the, uh, you know, people who live south of the border, who people who live north of the border, people from like whatever, whatever kind of enemy they want to be making it's really difficult to make enemies out of people that you know, or uh, from points of view that you, that you actually know. So, but I've noticed that people who live outside of those kinds of systems or um, like enter with systems. So even if you're just like moving between like Germany and the United States, you're seeing that there's like whatever lies they're telling you about, like, this is how the whole world is. You can't, you can't really believe it anymore, you know? And you see that a lot with anybody who's like around a lot of international people, whether they're coming from Asia to the United States, you know, or any country to any other country, you, people always start shedding like, oh, I thought this is how it was, you know? Totally. And, you know, I remember after the election in 2016, my brother and I were together and we were both feeling quite disillusioned as I mean, I'm sure you can understand um, remembering not only that Trump won the election, but also that no one was expecting for Trump to win the election until about 15 minutes before he did, basically. Um, and and what he was saying at that point, which I always found really, which I've thought about a lot since then, um, is that it's important. I think he at that point said, instead of following the media, but probably at this point, we would agree that it's in addition to following the media. It's really important to talk to people from different countries. Just really important to have kind of your local news sources on the ground. Um, because things are always going to be different to how they're made out to be. And during this pandemic time, I think we've we've all... Well, for sure, my brother and I, and, and for sure many other people as well, have had the experience of seeing news from a country and then going to that country and being shocked at how different in whatever way the situation was from how it was made out to be and so i think it is really important and that's actually one of the kind of purposes of this podcast to talk to people who are on the ground as it were in one or more countries um and to to really talk about things on the level of 
looking for understanding, which is probably not one of the things that the media is focused on by design. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's, it's, it's just a, I think it's just a byproduct of what the media is. I don't think we should like fault the media because understanding isn't from getting you don't get understanding from hearing the one perfect source you know it's like ah my media source is so perfect that i have understanding of the situation you know so why would we always hold it to that level and have that expectation and then be let our guard down so that when we're like oh but i heard it's like well really is that where understanding comes from it's just hearing whatever you hear and then saying that that's true you know so it's always been the case so i i feel like right now for our generation the responsibility is on us to get better at at making sure everybody knows that that is the case you know like it shouldn't be that surprising that someone can speak in every word be a lie you know yeah. And so why do we not have a mechanism to deal with that, you know, for example? <laughs> but for sure, I think having a wider view of the world would make those lies less digestible, you know? If you're saying they're murderers, they're rapists, they're coming over, blah, 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 all this kind of, like, language, it's very... It's, it's really easy to identify once you've started to identify it and... And it happens all over the world, and it's kind of ubiquitous in human culture, its ability to happen, right? You can, you can identify it everywhere, everywhere. And it's not about, you know, what culture is. It's, it's, a, it's like the power dynamics that are going to be the same everywhere. Right. Well, and the other thing is that I think that the easiest and fastest way to create community um, and, you know, we've been talking about this often in the national conversation and international conversation is to find a common enemy. I mean, that's just the quickest recipe for community, right? I mean, if you want an us, you can work on fostering us or you can identify them. Um, and I think that's just been stirred so much recently. And, and it's, it's complicated. I am wondering, speaking of us and them, I find that a lot of times the guests that we have who are from two cultures find that while they're in the country they're living in, they feel like the other culture very often. And it's not until they leave that country that they feel most strongly identifying with the culture that they grew up in, if that makes sense. And I was wondering if you feel more American, as it were, when you're abroad, or if that's not something that really plays into your psyche. I feel like I, I've heard that a lot, too. Um, and I, I definitely understand I think what people are talking about, but I don't necessarily feel that way because um, there's something about like, for example, being in America that makes me feel very American, you know? And I don't have the feeling when I'm not here, but um, like a little, me and my wife, Megan, we were traveling and we had like dinner in Kuala Lumpur at this like beautiful street market and then we had a layover in Shanghai that would happen to be breakfast time. So we were there and there was like a dumpling shop. And so we had like dumplings and then we had our another 15 hour flight and we were in Los Angeles with a, like an eight hour layover. So we got out of, um, out of the plane and, um, then there was like 
this like pizza place in a strip mall, like Marco's Pizza, you know, like just like very like next to a coin laundry. And we went there. Every single place was like so delicious. And then by that night we were in Atlanta and the only thing that was open was Church's Chicken. So like, and it's like every one of the, you're not trying to be any place. I wasn't like sad that I wasn't in a place that had like the best noodles anymore. It was like more that I was happy that all of the world does what it does. Like it's just itself, you know, like everywhere can just be itself and you can just let that happen. So that's more the the experience I have when I'm going around the world. I don't feel like where I've come from, um, like disqualifies me from like participating in the culture, you know? Um, although I've had really interesting experiences, like in Austria, I had a, got invited to a party, a family party by a friend that I had just made. And it was a lot of very conservative Austrian people. I didn't really realize that. And I'm there like blundering my way through German, you know? And at some point, one of the people was like, kind of like grilling me. Why are you here? What are you doing? I'm trying to like, remember how to say like summer festival in German, you know, and saying like, you know, I'm here for a couple of extra weeks. And at some point the guy was like, Oh, you're American let me give you a friendly word of advice. When you go around, you should speak English because then people will know that you're American. Otherwise, we'll just assume that you're an immigrant. I was just asking you all these questions, like, you know, because I wasn't sure, like, how my nephew had, like, met you and, like, brought you to this party. And it was like, oh, whoa. And this was from a party. This was the, the family. They were Viennese, Austrian, Jewish people who, like, had just spent the last hour telling me about their family's survival through the Third Reich, you know? And so it was like this like very like poignant moment that's like, oh, it's not about culture, <laughs> you know? It's about like how media is playing and how otherizing is happening. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting thing. In some ways, you know, in, in that I guess in that situation, had I seemed more American, that person would have felt more comfortable with me from the beginning, you know? But through all of this, this is like halfway through the event, you know, and finally someone's like, you know, yeah, but where exactly do you come from? You know, <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> but that was pretty much the only, I mean, other experiences, like I had a lot of really good experiences, even with really country people and in the same you know, it's kind of interesting. I have that experience in Vienna and then like fast forward, you know, to another time, um, you know, I'm hiking around Tyrol and like, you know, I'm not supposed to be camping where I'm camping, but the people I meet are just like super warm and friendly and didn't really care that my skin is brown, you know, <laughs> or that my German isn't good, you know? <laughs> so well, that's the thing. I mean, I think humans, especially when they don't know each other, you know, you're always trying to recreate structural hierarchies within this macro globalized society. So it's like, can you give me some information about yourself so I can figure out how to treat you? Uh, and that's just this really, really disturbing, but somehow, in a way, I, I can also understand it in the sense that, you know, human beings originated in really small communities. And so once you're in a situation in which you're meeting strangers all the time, like people who don't stop to think about it automatically latch on to trying to put people into boxes so that they can understand as though they'd always known them, which is the irony because clearly by definition, you don't know the person at all. 
But that can be really, really frustrating when you when you come up against those kind of things. Yeah. But it's nice in the I think the world, regardless of like uh where people fall on political spectrums in whatever countries they are, in most places, whoever their um their audience is, you know, even these like even the like most backwater white supremacy kind of like, you know, trolls that exist are still performing on a stage that they believe is the whole world. And they know that these other countries or other cultures or perspectives are watching them and they're defining themselves against that. You know, um, they're not taking the, the time to get to know those other perspectives, but they are at least cognizant that they're there. So that's a place we've never, if we're being honest, we've actually never been there. People like, we were saying before about cultures are always appropriating other cultures. That's always happening to everybody's culture all the time. That's how it works, you know? So anybody who's trying to preserve or like, who is like, they're, they're not living in reality, but even if they're trying to do that, their culture is still appropriating and accumulating and becoming a conglomerate rather than regardless of what their intention is. Was there ever a period, I mean, we've talked about like personal growth and conclusions that you've reached throughout the years. Was there ever a period that was specifically difficult for you as a bicultural person? Um, and if so, were there any also key takeaways that you came out of that period with? Well, I guess I could, I should say something about that, something, because that's kind of the only experience that I've ever had where my mixed race was seen as something that was like the where I was ever brought aware that that could be considered dirty. So uh, in the situation when it was somebody that I was like romantically interested in and um, the reason that I was given was because their family culture would not accept my mixedness, you know, and not really understanding that quite at the time or what that meant. And, like what that really was a reflection on in terms of what was happening in that family or like whatever. I don't know any of the answers to that, but just sort of that did end up opening up like, cause I would talk with friends and be like, can you believe that this is an issue? And I do remember hearing some things like, Oh wow, that's so weird because you don't look mixed. It's not like you're like mixed black or something like that. And then just, and then coming uh, to terms with that, like that there are these points of view out in the world that are held by like otherwise normal seeming people. And when they don't think that you're, it's like the opposite. Like if they don't think that you're that other, the like secret racist things that they'll say to you, you know? Yes. Because they're trying to bring you into the us. And by doing that, they're revealing to you how strongly they see a them. Yeah. So I guess that would be a, a case where I think my biculturalism makes it difficult for me to actually accept that invitation. You know, it makes it impossible for me to accept that invitation, even if someone's like, oh, wow, you like you, you sound just like me. Like, you know, like, like, you know, and but like I can talk to them. But in terms of like really, really being a part of that person's group, I can never actually be a part of that group. So as a result, even though I know a lot of really, really Southern people, I'm not close to any of those kinds of people. You know, there's a part that I can't ever really be um, like a part of their community. Exactly. I can be in the periphery and I can interact, but 
I guess if I'm thinking as a young kid, there were things that I was embarrassed about, like, or embarrassed for my siblings. Like, oh, don't use that word. Why? Because that's not an English word, yo. Like, you know, and they don't know. <laughs> like, nobody knows what you're saying. Like, you sound crazy and you're embarrassing me. You know, like, so those kinds of, those kinds of situations um, um, in my family, like, um, I guess that's a really good example of, of like kind of being stuck in the middle. Like, so we use, um, honorific titles, even among the siblings. So, um, I refer to my older siblings as older brother and older sister. Like if I never will just say just their name by themselves. I'll never be like Anjali, you know, never like, and, um, so you know, then when we would be like little kids and my older sisters are playing or my older brother's playing and I'm like, Ati, Kuya, and they're like, what do they call you? What is the thing they're saying? You know, so occasionally there would be something like that. But people who were like that didn't ever last long. Like I couldn't tell you any of the names of the people who had that reaction. You know, I have a younger sister, I remember, who like, in high school, like I came home from college and she was like, you know, had her friends over and she was like, Hey, Josiah, Hey, Josiah. And I was like, who are you even talking to? <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, like why, what is happening here? So there've been like, you know, a difficulty even like, so I'm being like the weird conservative one. That's like, I'm not even going to acknowledge you because you're like, what, who told you you could call me that? That's, but from one side, that's like my name. But for whatever reason, I didn't feel it that way. I was just like, what? I don't understand. Like, you know, you're trying to be all cool and I don't care what your friends think of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> So sometimes those kinds of things would happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So especially as growing up as a kid, it was really good. You know, if we were around a lot of Filipino people, then, or other kids who were like us, they were mixed, or at least they were growing up in the U.S., so they were, like, just as mixed as we were in that, and culturally, you know, whether both their parents were Filipino or one of their parents is Filipino, like, we were all living in the same sort of, like, mixed culture, you know? Um so that that's when it would be advantageous for us because people would know what we were saying and you know um and in those in those situations whether they're related to you or not you still use those honorific titles so it feels comfy and you know nobody's confused about things so there were things there were times like that where just finding other groups that like had a bunch of people who had similar kinds of um, culture to you so to this day the people that I'm close with that I like grew up around are all people in that kind of a situation they're all like some like all my childhood friends that I still am in contact with weirdly so um, like Filipino or some kind of Filipino Filipino black Filipino white or you know Filipino Cuban but the thing that was like when we were all together it was like everybody like was just Filipino you know, so it was a blended notion of what it is. So probably what my notion of it is very different of being Filipino than somebody who um, maybe just always grew up in the Philippines and maybe in a more traditional part of the Philippines, like where they're not getting a whole lot of exposure to um, a lot of international people. But 
growing up in Atlanta and that Filipino community, wherever people were from, or even if you weren't even Filipino, if you were there, everybody was like, you know, you're a part of the situation, you know? We're going to take a quick break from the conversation to hear some of Josiah's wonderful playing. Here's an excerpt of Max Rager's Suite Number no. 1 in G minor for solo viola. actually start playing the viola, Josiah? So everybody in my family had to play the piano and the violin as part of just being like, that's just what we all did. (laughs) Um, My siblings were already playing violin and piano before I was old enough to play, so I don't remember it quite the way they remember it of like being told that they were going to learn this like new fancy thing because somebody told my parents that it was going to make us really good at math. So, <laughs> um, um, but I really always wanted to play an instrument. So um, my siblings were already playing and I was already pretending that I was playing. And I don't remember this, but when I first picked up a violin, I already knew like all of the Suzuki songs. <laughs> In, in, in book one, just because my older sisters had been playing it for years. I do remember um, going to their recitals and like pretending that I was a violinist afterwards, but with nothing in my hands, you know? So I remember really wanting it. Um, but in terms of viola, that was not till later. I really wanted to play cello because somebody in our family periphery was... Um, a multi-instrumentalist and so was always bringing over like different instruments that they had like bought at flea markets and things like that (laughs) so they brought over um they had our actually brought over a viola and people were saying like oh if you guys had a cello then you could have a string quartet because you have violin everybody plays violin and the viola is just like that so they can all play that so you just need to find a cello so um for a long time i begged my parents to let me play cello and eventually they did, but I couldn't quit violin or piano. That was like, that was the, like, the requirement. <laughs> so, so you can see like where I'm taking cello, violin, and piano. There's also a theory class there. There's a group of people that are also taking from those teachers who that's like my school 
that's like my young school experience is basically what's happening through through this stuff. So I, I did end up playing cello and viola and violin in quartet with my brothers and sisters. And then as I got older, I was in youth orchestra as a, a violinist, um, but they needed a violist for a chamber piece. So I, I did that. And then there was another chamber group that was, they just didn't have any violas. So I was like, oh, I can play viola. Eventually I was like, oh, I, I think I'm just going to like do this. Cause I had a teacher that told me like that, um, I had to choose something that I couldn't be a jack of everything, just be kind of half, half nothing, you know? <laughs> so at that point, when I was like 15, 14, 15, I was like, I'm a violist. So that's basically, that's the long version of how I became a violist. It was, it was always there. It wasn't like I switched. I never made a switch to viola, you know? It was like I stopped playing other instruments. <laughs> um, but these days, I feel less like that. I don't feel as like afraid to. In college, I wouldn't ever play violin or admit that I had studied violin, you know, because <laughs> there was like a thing like if you were a violinist who played viola, then you probably were bad at the violin, you know. <laughs> so it's just like just better like, you know, let it go. But these days, I'm like I don't I don't really care. You know, I was like, yeah, I'll, I can play violin. I can play the piano too. So it's fine. You know, <laughs> something I really love about even how I understand my own instrument is like where it came from, you know, strapping a, a, a string to a hollow gourd is not a European invention, you know? So that's a, something that's, so awesome and important like even some of the things that we will see as like characteristically defining of a certain culture come from other cultures that um in the mainstream it seems like people believe that those are to use one of their phrases diametrically opposed right you know um, um so that's something that i find really really interesting about um our instruments when i was younger i worked a lot with the silk road ensemble um that played music from from that region and all the way from China all the way to you know Turkey and um, I got to some exposure to instruments and also even pieces that reminded me of other pieces they, nobody told you like oh why does this like why is this orger melody like so similar to this you know this other like uh, was supposed to be like a Hungarian dance or something you know <laughs> um, so that like just invention of borders to help us understand, it also can limit the way that we understand. You know, their categories are all fine, but when we let categories become, like when we start to believe that they are uh, absolute values, you know, um, we get really, really lost. <laughs> really, really lost. So um, um, I'm kind of nerdy even. So when people like refer to um, like, when explaining like string instrument families to like young kids in a school kind of presentation situation. Oh, here's the violin, the viola, the cello, and the bass. I always like to bring up that the bass is the only like quote unquote surviving member of the gamba family, you know, that, um, and why that's important. And, you know, and, and if that's like, Oh, what is that? What's the gamba? And for me, that journey is like, it, it always keeps me moving forward, you know? Totally. 
Totally. And we fixate so much in classical music on a period of, I guess, around 200 years um, that we we forget we forget before. I mean, we forget. It's incredible. And I always am so struck by the fact that many of the finest classical instruments that we have were built before some of the greatest repertoire for classical instruments. Um, and just the fact that, you know, it's it was an evolution and a process and that there's so much that happened that's not even on our radar that completely formed what we're doing today. Yeah. And and the story of like why we're here, how we got here is in, embedded in every little thing that we have, you know, because everything is cumulative. So every piece of technology, every, you know, of the instrument like shares some piece of history, you know, just like, you know, tells you what kind of culture, like, why would you have something that you can make out of, you know, sheep gut, for example, why, why are, why are those strings made out of that, for example, you know, um, or why do we use this turn of phrase or that turn of phrase, you know, what, and even if you try to erase, you know, some bit of history, you try to go on like a purist, like editing of your language, for example, which people do, you know, right? Um, um, even then you can't hide, you can't erase that your culture um, is borderless, you know? And it's embedded in the way that you, that you speak or the fact that you share syntax or the, you know, like, you know, and even you can try really, really hard, but you can't erase it. So, and the same with music, you know, same with interpreting, like the way that we interpret scores, you know, we're looking for what is really there to explain to us why we're here, you know, or we're looking for what's really in the score to explain why we would do such a thing with the time or with the, with the intensity um, change over time, you know? Um, yeah. And again, we talked about this in episode 15, but for our non-musician listeners, um, a score is just, um, it's just the document that contains all the different voices of any given piece. So we're not talking about like a point system or anything like that, but we're talking about how musicians are always beholden to seeing the big picture instead of being stuck in their own specific voice and to understand how that works within the context of the whole. Good catch. I wouldn't have even thought that somebody doesn't know what I'm talking <laughs> about with the score. <laughs> well, it's just, it's interesting because like, I always think like if, if I hear from the outside, looking at the score makes me think of actually like a basketball game. Um, if I, if I turn off my music ears, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. Now that you point that out, that's all I can hear now. <laughs> something that con concerns me a lot lately is um, just how devoted and we people are to uh, particular points of view, even even to the detriment of a whole. You know, that's why we have to deal with uh, how we how we listen and how we like analyze perspectives that we're encountering, you know? Um, because right now we are in a place where um, a lot of people's notion of what perspectives are real and fake is, is totally hijacked, right? Yeah, so I hope that, I don't know what role, I'm always asking myself like what role music plays and what role musicians can play in 
in bringing awareness. And I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it does seem to me that at least music plays a role in musicians' lives who are really dedicated to sharpening their craft. The result is you have to observe yourself a whole lot and it doesn't matter what you believe. If it's not coming out a certain way, it doesn't really mean anything, right? So because of that, you're, you're forced on a daily basis. And even a lot of us get um, some mental health issues, you know, that because of it. Um, but on not considering so much that bad side on, on that positive side, a lot of musicians are used to self-reflection, at least within a certain spectrum of things. You know, you're not going to, you might still not like if somebody tells you a different political opinion than what you um, subscribe to. But if you're like in a situation and you feel like you're dragging, you're not going to take that personally. Right. <laughs> but I wonder if there's a way that um, we can share the good part of the listening you know, like how, how we can teach people. We, we often think that the music should just be the teacher itself. We don't um, talk to people explicitly about what is what it is that they should be listening to. You know, we don't say like, wow, there's like, it sounds like unity, but what you're looking at is counterpoint, you know, rhythmic or harmonic, but that by definition means things that are against each other, you know? They're the antithesis of each other. And that's what, what we're, what listening to that brings understanding to the situation. There's no like true Beethoven opus 59 number three, for example. There's no, there's no true existence of that. There's like people listening to the way that the parts are like in conflict with one another and in resolution, therefore. And we make interpretations off of those. And I wonder if we, are sharing those kinds of things that we do that because we're like so trained, you know, and it takes years to get that. I wonder if we can be more explicit about that with our audiences in terms of like the, the music is not just to be moved and to make, but it's to like that when we're listening, we know we're a part of the world, you know, and the part of the world that we're aware of is what we are listening to. So if people are learning to strengthen that part, if we ha can have a, um, a part in strengthening that part to teach people, hey, you know, you actually can listen. You can listen really well. It's been really a long time since anyone's asked you to do that, you know, but you can do it really, really well and you're just out of practice because we're, um, we're moving fast, we're getting money, we're paying rent, we're, you know, we're, we're being entertained, we're on vacation, we're working hard, we're hustling, whatever the answer is. But very rarely is it do a lot of people have an opportunity to exercise the most important quality, you know, of listening. So um, just talking with other musicians about how, how can we actually affect the world? What is, what is going and playing against poverty mean? You know, does it do anything? Are you really doing anything? Are you just giving rich people a way to like, you know, shuffle around their money? <laughs> um, um, like what are the, the, and it must be something, it must be something because it is ubiquitous and it's, it is always the thing that like, it's not a truth that people are explicit about, but it's something that people are always returning to, you know? Mm.
And the question that we always like to end these episodes with, um, as you are the fast forward of a child from a bicultural relationship, what would you say to a couple that has young children or is thinking of having children where the two parents come from different cultures right now? Don't be afraid to just lean into both cultures. Uh, I feel like there's sometimes can be where people, they want the child to be more this culture or more that culture based on what the parents perceived importance of where their social standing is. And I don't think that's ever really been a big problem. I, you know, I've never met a multilingual kid who was confused about what language they were speaking. When they're really young, they don't know who knows what language. But by the time they're like six, seven, eight, they can suss out who knows what languages and they'll speak the appropriate languages, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's I just lean into it. Don't let anybody tell you that it has to be one way or another, you know? Well, Josiah. Thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, I've had a great time. Thanks, Natanya. The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thanks to Gilvenas Brazauskas, who's doing the editing, and who created, performed, and recorded the original music you're hearing right now. Thanks to Jessamine Jones, the graphic designer behind our logo, and all the graphics associated with the podcast two books that Josiah would recommend that were formative in his understanding of how culture works and how we understand value are The Bonobo and the Atheist by Franz Duval and The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker. If you'd like to get involved, you can send us a message at theextrahalf at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions on what we can do in the future. And if you'd like to support us, don't forget to visit patreon.com slash theextrahalf. Also, you can rate and review us on whichever platform you're using, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Next week, we'll be speaking to composer Sean O'Peblo, whose father is from Nigeria and whose mother is Black American. We have a really interesting conversation that you won't want to miss. We discuss topics ranging from his journey across the aisle politically, to the surprises that met him on his first visit to Nigeria, to the future of classical music. And of course, We'll hear some of his wonderful music as well. You can find us next Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care. Until next time. <laughs>